Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why It Matters, the podcast sharing the stories of innovators who are changing the world for good. This is Luke Martiros, your host, and our guest today is Christelle Schulten. She works at Rios Partners, solving the problems that are affecting society the most, yet receive the least amount of attention. They approach problems from a systemic point of view and then form alliances with the people who are directly affected by the problem. Christelle leads the Sao Paulo branch, which is part of their team on five continents. Before we get into it, everybody take a second to look up at the place you're in, appreciate what's around you, and take a deep breath with me. And now, off to the episode. All right. So today I'm very excited to welcome on Christelle to Why It Matters. Um, And I'm excited to delve into the topics today, just generally about social impact and what she does at Rios Partners and other things in her life that she's learned from her experiences there. And so don't wanna give any of your background away, want, want you to have the full stage. So I guess we can just dive in um, and generally just tell us about your path to getting to where you were. I know you started off working at a bank in Brazil. Um, and so how you went from the finance industry to where you are now. Great, thanks, Lucas. Um, it's great to be um, on this call, um, and I'm excited to talk to you and to share some of my story. Um, but maybe I can go before before the bank because um, I think the the path starts a little bit earlier than that. I think just going back to my um, my background, I'm Canadian, but with um, Dutch parents who immigrated to Canada, and um, they were quite active social activists, um, mainly with Amnesty International, social justice issues. Also environmental responsibility was part of how we grew up recycling and things like that. So I think the values were already instilled in me, you know, you know, at a very young age. And then I remember just always being concerned about environmental issues, social issues. Um, and I decided to go into a, a business career initially. So into did a, um, a bachelor's of commerce uh, with a focus on marketing entrepreneurship, but really with the un- intent to understand how does the economic and the business system work? Because I felt that that was a core to what needed to change in the world. So that was, even though I didn't know how that looked and this was in the nineties. So, you know, it was way before all of this social impact, social innovation talk, um, sustainability wasn't really something that was talked about at that point, but I had a sort of a, a gut feeling, I think that, um, it was through business that I could um, start to influence change. So that was kind of the, the entry point. Um, and then I was, I got in university, I got involved with a youth organization, international youth organization called ISEC. Um, and it was really that kind of helped open the doors to a lot of issues like entrepreneurship, um, social entrepreneurship, sustainability, corporate responsibility, cultural understanding. So that was really a, a door opening. And then uh, through that organization, traveled, traveled to many, many different countries around the world, interacted with um, people from over 80 countries, different cultures, and also with a group of young people who really wanted to transform the world, to change the world. So that was really part of, you know, the big part of um, growing up and the experience and opening these doors and 
Um, and it was through that organization that I think I got in touch with many of the organizations that were working and involved in sustainability, social responsibility at that point, um, you know, other you know, entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, and many of those people that I was part of that organization with, I'm still in contact with today, and they're doing fantastic, amazing things, changing different issues around the world in their different countries and, and spaces. So, and one, I remember one conference I was at that we were hosting and organizing, uh, Muhammad Yunus um, was one of the speakers there and that was in 1998. Um, and then, so before I actually entered into more of a formal career, I said, I want to spend some time in Bangladesh, um, understanding, uh, experiencing microcredit. And so I, um, in 2000, I went and spent seven months in Bangladesh, um, so first two months as an exposure visitor is what they call at the Grameen Bank in Dhaka, and then spending some time also in the fields with the women, you know, with the different uh, credit agents, you know, understanding the whole system, how it works, being, you know, in Bangladeshi clothing and integrating into the culture and being with the, um, with the lenders and uh, the women who were receiving the loans and doing their micro credit activities, uh, income generating activities. And then from there it was interesting because while I was, so maybe just going back a little bit before that, I'd been in, involved in a couple of conferences looking at sustainability, state of the world, you know, a lot of these issues. There was a lot of young people, you know, actively involved in many of these conferences, um, you know, sort of participating in smaller groups, but then influencing the agenda or representing youth um, on some panels and things like that. And that was the first time that I was exposed to sustainability in the financial industry. So that was, you know, kind of at the early 2000s when banks were starting to think about how they can incorporate social environmental issues into their core business. And that kind of opened my eyes to, um, you know, the potential of using finance um, for this type of transformation. And while I was in Bangladesh, interestingly, um, sort of a mentor of mine, he said that he had met um, someone from Brazil, from the bank in where I ended up working, Bancorel in Brazil. Um, she was at the head office in Amsterdam um, and she was just about to set up the sustainability department in Brazil for the bank, which is an operation of 30,000 employees here. But before that, so I came back, uh, lived in the Netherlands again for um, a short period of time and was working in the banking industry. So I entered um, sort of in the leadership department, a sustainability department that was just starting off there. That was in early 2000s um, and then worked there for two years. At the same time, I was doing a master's program at the University of Bath. So a master's in responsibility and business practice. Um, it was set up by Anita Roddick um, from the body shop. So it was at that time was very sort of a really innovative master's program looking at sustainability, the role of business. Um, so I was in that um, doing that master's program at the same time as working in the bank. So trying, it was a really a, a master's program to an applied master's pr program. So you're doing a lot of the action research, applying that, um, so a lot of the research and then applying that in, in your working situation. So that was just a really great, um, you know, because you could bring the academic piece into the practical piece and reflect on that learning and implement and test. Um, so that was already, you know, part of the I guess when you talk about social innovation, it's really about iterating, testing, prototyping, getting feedback. So already with that master's program, I was applying some of those, um, those approaches. And then I got the invitation to go to Brazil um, to become part of that uh, sustainability department in Brazil. 
And um, again, it was just a really, we had a leader at that time, the CEO who really wanted to create, his motto was create a new bank for a new society uh, and a new society really looking at social environmental issues, you know, the role of business in, you know, and especially a bank, the role of a bank um, and finance to contribute to these shifts um, that were needed in the different sectors. So not just looking at corporate responsibility, but really looking at the core business, the lending, um, the, you know, the business products um, in terms of what kinds of you know, financial products could be actually incentivizing uh, this type of transition. So I worked there until 2009. Um, so that was 2003 to 2009. Um, so six years uh, working in the bank. And then I really wanted to make a transition to working not just within one company, but working with a number of different sectors and stakeholders. So broadening that out. And that's what I'm doing today. So for the last 10 years, I've been working with Rios, um, primarily in Brazil, but um, it's part of a larger um, network, uh, social enterprise, international social enterprise with offices in different parts of the world. So Brazil is one of the offices, South Africa, Europe, uh, North America, and Australia, um, but our work is global. So, um, but predominantly my work has been here, but it's really been about bringing together the different stakeholders and the sectors. Um, so the private sector, public sector, and civil society um, to think together um, and collaborate together on some of the biggest challenges humanity and the planet faces. So that's kind of, um, you know, a bit of the path and kind of <laughs> a little bit of what I'm doing now. And that's amazing. Um, and I love the idea of bringing people together because I just from what I know about the field it's it's hard to solve problems that so many people face and just getting more people working on the same page is great um, I think I want to go back to something you said earlier and something mm -hmm. that I've experienced and everyone has experienced now with COVID but I think the importance of traveling especially at a young age and being ex exposed mm -hmm. to different people and cultures I'm currently a Babs in the senior and I have the good luck of being surrounded with friends from South Africa and India and China and so on. And even not even living in the country, but just being around those people and their culture and heritage is so rich and you learn a lot, so much. So what do you think was it like for you to, to travel like that at a young age and, and learn from it? And would you recommend it to other people? Would you not, especially in this environment with COVID where you know, you've students, high school students, college students, they can do their work remote Maybe would you recommend traveling, taking classes in new places? Would you not? I guess, yeah, just speaking from experience, I think it's been something that's been, um, that's given me so much in my life. Um, one piece that I didn't say was right after high school, I spent uh, one year in Mexico on a rotary exchange. So that was my first exposure to more of a developing country, emerging market country, uh, where you know, previously in Canada, of course, there's social environmental issues, but these are exacerbated in countries um, like Mexico with high levels of poverty, um, maybe not the same level of responsibility or education around environmental issues. Um, so that was the first at 16, um, quite, you know, a significant experience, you know, being exposed to that. The, especially, I think for me, was the inequalities, like uh, obviously being on an exchange student, not necessarily this the rotary program you know in other countries doesn't necessarily place you in rich families it could be just a normal common family in canada it's very much you know open for everyone but in the emerging markets it's very much sort of an elitist um 
program and you're you're put in you know placed in in families that mostly are you know from a, a wealthier strata a strata of society so that was my first experience i think uh, with inequalities uh, where i hadn't necessarily seen that so much growing up um, so and just in general the exp international exposure i think it just opens your mind so much you know different languages cultures um, you know, ways of being, ways of thinking. Uh, I think it was, you know, by the time I was 30, I'd traveled to more than 40 countries. Um, wow. And so it's just really rich and not just traveling as um, a tourist, but really like living with families, being with families, being integrated in the cultures. You know, I'd spent, um, so Brazil has been now 17 years, uh, two times in Mexico was a total of two years, the Netherlands was five years altogether. So I'd lived abroad um, for a number of years. And so you just, there's so much that you gain. Um, and especially also the interaction with young, other young people, you really feel like you're part of a tribe that wants to, you know, especially the organizations I was part of, um, you feel like a tribe of, of young people who want to try to change the world. I guess, you know, some people may say that it's very idealistic and, you know, get your feet on the ground, and, you know, look at reality. But I think just being able to connect with other young people around the world who are also seeing, you know, that the world needs to change and, you know, what youth can do and, you know, young people and, that you don't need to follow a traditional career. I think you just spoke about that before we got on um, in terms of not following a traditional career. Some people even questioning what is you know, a career or work in social impact area, social innovation. Um, and I think that's the role of, um, of young people who are a bit more awake, you know, you know, seeing what's happening around the world, wanting to contribute and not wanting to go down a traditional path. Um, there was one other organization I was involved in, uh, which is called Pioneers of Change. And this, this was a group sort of, of, of people who are university age, just leaving university, just about to enter sort of, I guess, their first job, first, you know, jobs, um, looking at what their career would look like. And it was really challenging young people to do exactly that, not follow a traditional career and create um, the, the type of life and work that you want to be a part of. So in that group, you know, I'm still in touch with many of those today, many social entrepreneurs. I don't know if you've heard of the Impact Hub. I um, have. Yeah. So that came out of a couple of these people that were in that organization. They started the first hub um, just outside of London. And now I think there's more than 100 hubs around the world. And this is all social impact. Um, you know, now a few of them had to close because of COVID physically, but not their work. Um, but it's just, you know, there's many from that organization that have branched out into doing lots of really great work, not only, you know, in the social entrepreneurship field, but also, you know, what can they do to influence change within government or influence change within companies or setting up their own organization. So it was really, um, yeah, a supportive network to be able to connect um, and support, you know, realizing these types of dreams, which I think is challenging a bit more of the status quo. It's exciting just listening to you, even as I'm interviewing you and talking with you, because I think there's a lot of young people who have that desire. And I'm, I, maybe I'm a little bit too much on the optimistic end, but I do think that you do have individuals that come once in every few generations that really can change the world. And if more people adopt that mindset, I think progress will occur just that much more quickly. Um, so it's nice to hear other people share that view and I'm sure as I go on I'll, I'll find more of that but how did how did that rich experience 
of culture and travel at a young age shape you into the person you are today and like how that manifests through your work and maybe you could touch on a bit of the work that you do sure i think yeah the richness of the cultural experiences is just it opens you up to not um, judging not assuming um, you know a lot of respect um, for people's different perspectives and viewpoints and that is so important in the work that i do which is you know bring together diverse groups of people it could be from the same country it could be across different countries but just that aspect of empathy understanding listening putting yourself in yourself in the shoes of the others in the place of the others uh, when in many times many of these experiences internationally you can't bring in, you know, sort of what you know, um, because, you know, culturally it's different. You need to be a little bit more open and understanding, empathetic, and even sometimes adapting, you know, yourself to that culture so that you're better able to integrate. So I think just those qualities are so helpful in this type of work where you're bringing together diverse people, which could be on different political spectrums, different, different um, ideological perspectives, or, you know, cultural but also in terms of your sector you know people from business you know have a different mindset or model from someone who comes from the um you know from a nonprofit organization or for government and so just this understanding and being able to be empathetic and encouraging these differences to you know really contribute to the work and what's needed um you know the different thoughts the different ideas the different perspectives are you know one of the core aspects of what what we do so maybe um, touching a little bit more about what, what is some of our work now. Um, so as Rios, as I was mentioning, it's a social international social enterprise. We work, um, you know, multi-stakeholder, multi-sector. So bringing together different parts of the system. So in many cases, this is the public sector, the private sector, nonprofit, but everything in between as well, like the unions, activists, media, academia. So we try to bring what we call it is, and I know you're saying, you know, use some simple language but one of the words that we use often is uh, the microcosm of a system so who are the different players that would not necessarily be representative of a system because it's much more than that but the, you know the different voices in a system that need to be heard and need to need to be brought in to be able to have an understanding of that issue whether it's a climate issue a social issue inequality race um, conservation sustainability so that they can have a really a systemic understanding bringing these different voices and perspectives together and then identifying what are some paths forward even if we don't necessarily agree on everything you know as a group um, bringing in these diverse perspectives what is, are some of the possible pathways that we can work on together um, and so in in rios we've got two approaches that we work with primarily um, but there's many other aspects that we bring into the work. But two, um, the most important ones are um, we bring together groups of people to think together about possible futures of a system. Um, and a system could be um, a region, it could be a country, it could be a topic area. So for example, we're working with Amazon um, here in Brazil. You know, so what are the possible futures for the development of the Amazon? Um, but we've done this. So this is transformative scenarios. Adam Kahane is one of our uh, founders uh, of Rios when it was founded in, in 2007, but his work goes way, way beyond. Um, and started in the early 90s. He was um, part of the scenario planning team at Shell in, in the UK. And during the transition between 
apartheid to democracy in South Africa. He was invited to um, run, facilitate, design, facilitate, and exercise, um, you know, a more multi-stakeholder exercise of thinking together about what are the possible futures for South Africa as a country. Then later he got invited by, um, by people in Colombia. So um, one of the former presidents, uh, Santos, um, he heard about this story, um, this work in, in South Africa and invited Adam um, to then conduct another similar exercise, scenarios exercise with a multi-stakeholder group of people in, in Colombia. And that then led to Destino Colombia, which is what the project was called and still influences today um, sort of the path to peace um, that Colombia, that trajectory. So those are two examples of, of scenarios, but there's many others who've done this type of exercise in more than uh, 30 different countries and topics around the world. Um, we've done that in Brazil on the national education system with the fashion industry, with civil society, democracy in the Americas, the possible futures for drugs. But this, you know, we've done this with other sectors um, in different parts of the world um, as well. So the food system in South Africa, food system globally, um, and for countries as well, other countries, um, we've done this type of exercise. So that's really when it's quite difficult to bring these stakeholders together at the outset to work together. One of the ways that we um, bring them together is to think together about possible futures, because it just opens up their mind a little bit out of the box um, to think about different possible futures. And then um, if there's appetite to continue working together, then that could transform into what we call as a social lab or a social platform um, where of collaboration innovation, where they can identify what are the core. So we do a lot of systems mapping, what are the core issues that either would be um, inhibiting um, or accelerating a, a transformation process, um, identifying these core issues, core challenges, and then working together, either prototyping solutions together or bringing in solutions that already exist, business, social businesses or government programs or um, businesses you know, that are working on these solutions to really see how can we work together as a system to be able to accelerate the change that's needed. So that's, those are the two forms, scenarios and, and these social labs or platforms. Um, some of the platforms could be you know, a year long, some um, like the, one of them in, in Brazil has been, it's a four year platform so far. Um, and it's really bringing together diverse cycles to think together and, and collaborate around some of these big issues. So some of the issues that we work, um, not exclusively, but the core areas that we have been, you know, had more bodies of work have been climate and energy, health, education, um, peace, governance, uh, democracy, um, sustainability or natural resources, conservation, land, food. Um, so there's been a number of different, we don't say that we're experts on the topics, um, but we bring in a, a deep level of um, intent um, and design into the, into the facilitation and into the, the work together with these groups. Wow. <laughs> sounds it sounds mightily impressive uh, amazing to hear and i feel like it would be very helpful for the audience to learn a little bit more about what it means and what the value of really engaging people who face the problem what is that value and why is doing that so important 
Yeah, I think that's one aspect that we, we find really important with our work. And that's why we do a lot um, to map the system first, understanding who are the key stakeholders that need to be involved in this conversation. And even the ones, especially the ones that are most excluded from the conversation. Um, so, for example, um, in, in Brazil, we've had this platform in the fashion industry. So the, the aim is to create a sustainable and fair fashion industry in Brazil. And at the very beginning of that process, we mapped you know, who are the core stakeholders. So this included Bolivian um, seamstress workers who came to Brazil in conditions of you know, slave labor conditions. Um, and we brought them into the room with the other 40 participants. Um, and this is not only for this exercise, but in other exercises, national exercises, we bring in um, you know, indigenous peoples, um, marginalized peoples, um, different um, social groups, different, you know, the diversity in terms of race, gender, um, age, you know, region, all of this diversity is really important. Um, and so, because we feel that the more diverse the system is and the group that we can um, bring together, the more, the more of the real voices will be brought in, you know, the more of the real aspects of the system that needs to be changed is brought in. It's not always it's not necessarily easier. It's definitely more difficult, um, but we find that, you know, and it might take more, more time, you know, first to engage the people, build that trust. Um, there's a lot of work that we do. It, it was in person until last year, and then we had to move all of our processes online, um, but we were, we felt that we were able to successive, successfully, um, although, you know, there's certain aspects of an in-person meeting sessions that you can't replicate, even though you can do a lot online to build trust, but some of that work and some of the, you know, the real deep conversations happen, you know, over a glass of wine, over dinner, over a chat, you know, going for a walk together, that it's tough, much tougher to replicate that type of building trust. So most of our processes, when they were in person, it was we spent a lot of time building that trust initially so that the conditions were made to be able to create the collaborations and the, the changes and the transformations needed in that system. Yeah. What do you think is the hardest obstacle for you in your role in performing your job? Um, I think the toughest part is because you're so engaged with some of these issues um, is to try to leave that, you know, a little bit behind, you know, so that you can, uh, you know, after the work is done, you can kind of disconnect a little bit, you know, from the issues because there's a lot of hard stuff that we hear, um, personal stories, um, traumas, difficulties, um, and also tough perspectives that we might not agree with as well, you know, as a, as an individual. So we really, you know, as a role of a facilitator, we try to play more of an impartial role, even though our intent is to contribute to positive transformations. We um, are impartial in the sense that we need to make sure that we're bringing without any bias, you know, the different viewpoints into the room and allowing those viewpoints to be spoken. But also, you know, also we're, were at service to the system to improve it. So we do have an agenda in the sense that we want to improve the situation. We want to enable the, the stakeholders themselves to be able to uh, improve that situation. But um, I guess the toughest part is, you know, kind of not taking on all of these problems and issues um, and taking them home. And yeah, because you, with this work, you really go, del you delve deep deeply. It's not something that you can take lightly, um, you know, 
there's lots of we do you know, personal interviews with most of the stakeholders before we start a project so you hear personal stories challenges difficulties but also you know what inspires them what gives them hope so it's also very inspiring at the same time so it's not all you know the challenging and difficult there's many you know really fantastic stories and um, you get connected to many fantastic people who are leading great things um, and trying to influence change in many ways so that's say that's interesting. The hardest okay, so how do you, how do you, I have one, I want to flip it on a positive note. Mm -hmm. What do you, what are you most excited about in the future of what you do? And also, how do you, just going back, I think that was an interesting point. And in how do you manage that within your career of having something that you as an individual disagree with on a fundamental basis? And mm -hmm. maybe it's something that is occurring outside of your sphere of control that you you can't do anything about so how do you manage that as just a, a human being yeah i guess there's there's things that we come across that we won't agree with for sure um and it's just kind of suspending judgment i think is a big thing um is just really looking saying okay i don't agree with that recognizing that this is part of you know your value system that you might not um, agree with but suspending that judgment so that you can really enable deep dialogue and discussion to happen um, and potentially solutions coming out of, um, out of disagreements or out of, uh, yeah. So I think there's a huge exercise. And then, you know, there's a point where you just kind of say, okay, well, you know, personally, I don't agree with that, but I'm, I'm going to, you know, try to be at service to the group um, so that they can find solutions. And we won't work with any, you know, type of issue if we don't agree with, you know, some of the stakeholders or why they're coming to the table if there's um you know interests that you know we don't generally think are, are contributing to the transformation of that system then no we will say no to you know that type of work so there there is a limit as well like we won't do i think our as a social enterprise which is also you know two of the offices of the five are currently b corp certified certified so the B, B Corp so there's a real intention of using our services to contribute to the you know the betterment of, of these issues so um, there's a kind of a line that we play there but I think just in terms of the positive um, what inspires I think um, you know when we're in contact with so many great you know like I'm doing some work with the Amazon now and you just be able to be in contact with some fantastic people and organizations mm. and see what they're doing. And, um, you know, that just gives a lot of hope and energy. Obviously you still see many of the bigger challenges, you know, structural challenges um, that, you know, the world is facing governments, especially current uh, government in Brazil. I think you went through that you know, with, in, in the US, um, but just, uh, yeah, so there's lots kind of going against, um, you know, this kind of transformation that we're trying to promote. But in the, on the other hand, there's so many inspiring people and projects and initiatives and that gives a lot of hope. Yeah. How does, I think the intersection of politics and business, but especially social issues, which are can be deeply intertwined with politics with certain benefits programs and other solutions that the public sector might try to put out there. Mm -hmm. um, so how does the political climate for your company and for being in Brazil, how does it affect you and how do you guys adapt to it? 
Yeah, so I guess um, in terms of sort of how we try to influence change um, on a macro level are different levels. So we really look at, and this could be any country, situation, topic area, is really looking at how do we support these stakeholders to navigate the different um, trends, uh, so political, social, economic, environmental, um, you know, how do you navigate that context? So it's just being attentive and aware and seeing, okay, because many of the people who we're bringing together are really wanting to change the system. So they need to be able to also read this context and be able to navigate in a way that is, you know, that will at least move in the direction of how they want to. So that's one level is how to navigate this context um, that's always changing. Um, and at another level, it's, you know, what are the structural changes that need to happen? So this could be public policy, um, you know, are there public policies that are actually going against the type of change or are there others that are actually supporting the change that the, the group is wanting to? Also distribution of resources. We work a lot also on um, different power structures and how you can try to shift power systems. Um, so that's another level is more the structural level. Another level is much more, you know, related to the whole social, social impact, social innovation space, which is, um, you know, what are the initiatives, the ideas, the businesses, the interventions that can be done by groups of people and supporting that whole ecosystem of innovation. Um, and then there's a level that is kind of, you know, core to all of this is developing the capabilities um, and the relationships amongst this group of stakeholders. Um, so first in terms of the relationships, building that trust, that ability to collaborate, you know, possibility to co collaborate, and also the capacity as change agents, you know, how can they navigate the system? How can they shift um, things? You know, so it's really developing their capacity, not necessarily developing, but strengthening, you know, it could be many people who are already doing this work, but strengthening their capacity to be able to do influence change. So it's at different levels. Um, so not necessarily will we be working just at, at one level, um, we're working at different levels, but the context for sure impacts. Um, and I can just say our work up to 2018 um, was really much more around, you know, what are the social transformations that we can create? We were looking at, you know, like, um, you know, the national education system, you know, other development models, um, but what happened in 2008 with the, with the current government is that the groups of stakeholders we were working with had to look instead of what can we influence towards the future, what, can, what do we need to do now to protect what's already been built? Um, and so since 1988, which is when um, the constitution came about in Brazil, um, there's been so much put in place from the government, from civil society, from business that really was advancing the agenda, the environmental agenda, the social agenda, the human rights agenda, many public policies, um, laws put in place, systems that were really moving in a, in a direction which was, you know, even it might you know, have been a slow progress, but when we were starting to do this, when we were, you know, continuing our work in 2018, instead of, you know, looking at a a systems map and saying, okay, what can we do together to influence change, you know, this direction, it was really about what do we need to do now to protect what's been developed and the rights that have been um, 
gained over these last number of or decades. Um, so that's really been kind of, it was hard for us to accept that. We actually had to adapt some of the language methodology um, you know, in Brazil specifically because of that. Um, yeah, so that has an impact and for sure, um, political climates in different countries, you know, like we work in some places that are in conflict. Um, so that has a context and it's, it's really looking at how do you develop and support the resilience of the stakeholders um, in many of those situations so that they can, despite the conditions, despite, um, you know, what's around them, how can they advance yeah. and keep the hope, the resilience um, and advance things. I think that's very important just because of the, the actual problems that are being solved it's just they need a lot of people like yourself who are resilient and, and can push through tough situations, political, whatever issues there are there, don't really need to dive into that in this show, but <laughs> uh, it's another story. But I want to respect your time. And so I'm gonna wrap up with two questions. Mm -hmm. One of them is personal and one is a question that I ask every guest that I have in the show. Um, and so the first one is that I was reading about your experience with nature and mm -hmm. sacred passage. And that's something that I hold close to my heart. Um, and something that I gain a lot of value from. And so I'd love to hear about your experience with nature and what it provides for you and how it's impacted you in a positive way. Yeah, that's been, I think also just growing up, you know, I remember our family, we used to do a lot of camping and just out in nature. So that was part of growing up, you know, just being a Canadian as well. We always say, you know, I mean, the Americans as well, you're almost born with a tent, you know. Um, <laughs> so it's just that was part of, you know, growing up wanting, you know, a lot of camping and out in nature. But what I think for me was um, really a turning point was um, in 2006, I did the first sacred passage. And this is um, a person, a a shaman, a spiritual leader, his name is John Milton, um, and he runs an organization called The Way of Nature, um, and he's kind of behind the whole environmental movement, one of the key players of the environmental movement in the, I guess even in the 60s, um, and he traveled around the world as well, he, so he, he comes from an indigenous family, I believe it's his grandmother who's um, from indigenous roots and he had asked I think at the age of four if he could do his own um, vision quest so this was um, at the age of four he, he started asking his parents if he could do a vision quest so the traditional vision quest in the indigenous um, so North American indigenous peoples is um, three days out to nature on your own no protection no food no water no sleep um, and so he was asking his parents at a very young age if he could do that. And they, I believe they, it, this is all written in, in books of his. And um, but, so I'm telling some of the stories, but I'm not sure if I've got all the facts right. But I believe at seven, he was allowed to, for the first time, do his own vision quest. Um, and oh in, the traditional, <laughs> in the traditional forms. And then, you know, bringing out friends to do that. But then this, he then um, traveled internationally, lived in, uh, in Asia, especially, you know, learning a lot of traditional spiritual practices, Qigong, Tai Chi, meditation. Um, and he kind of, when he came back to North America, he, he lives now, he has a, some sacred land in Crestone, Colorado. That's kind of where his base is. Um, he 
synthesized what he felt were some of the key practices or principles of the different traditions around the world, including indigenous, indigenous um, Asian traditions, um, and synthesized this and then created more of a modern version of a vision quest, which he calls the sacred passage. Um, so I did the first one in 2006. Um, I did it in Utah, uh, in Mohab. Um, so on top of the canyons, uh, just beautiful. So I spent, um, it was a program 12 days, but I actually spent seven days on my own um, in a tent. So we were allowed tents, um, but I was uh, fasting during the time I just had water um, and no distractions. So he said, you know, no books, no music, no anything that could take you distract you, no food, um, because that really brings you to your essence. And so it's really like a deep um, spiritual exercise, um, being on your own for seven days. Um, the first few days are tough, but then you just seem to go into a rhythm of, you know, being in, in cycle with the, the cycle of nature. And from, that was a pretty transformative experience for me. And then since that, I've, since then, I've done more trainings with him. Um, I'm one of the, you know, I'm, certified guides for shorter programs, not the larger programs yet. Um, you kind of have to do a 28 day solo to be able to guide people on the sacred passage. <laughs> so that's oh my God. one of the intents that I have. I'd like to do that by the time I'm 50. Um, just, but it's been part of my practice and I've tried to bring it into the work as well. So sometimes with this type of work, we put people on retreat, three hours sitting alone in nature. You know, what is, what is nature telling you? What is your inner, um, or telling you um, about the situation, about your role in it. Um, so I've tried to bring some of that into the work um, that we do, but that's been a huge inspiration. Um, I live in nature here in Brazil, um, try to do retreats um, often. Um, I've done a few more of those, but then also guiding others. And in Brazil, what I love is that there's so much access to many different cultural tradition, cultural, environmental, shamanic, um, you know, plant-based traditions. So it's just, it's amazing, you know, once you start delving into it, what you can explore. Um, so I've been do doing a little bit more of, um, you know, connecting to the deep feminine with shamanic work. Um, so Mexican temascals, I don't know if you know those, you know, those sort of saunas um, where you sit with, um, you know, hot rocks inside the, you know, a, a man-made sauna, you know, of twigs and burlap um, mats um, with fire and so yeah I've been delving into that uh, which is you know a deep part of the inspiration as well that was <laughs> such an abundant story thank you for that honestly just on a personal level um, I myself have been trying to not trying I have been getting into meditation and some I guess you could use the the broad brush word spirituality but I think mm -hmm. it's really important for many people to to try that stuff and so i would i'm very excited to learn mm -hmm. more and i hope those who are listening are too um and so to but wrap I think maybe, up maybe just just before that just in terms of the bringing it back yeah. to the work um so as facilitators of these processes our personal practice is really important so i would say the majority of us have some sort of meditative practice or nature practice because that really brings a level of presence and grounding to the work um, and to your ability to be at service to you know, the groups of people that we're working with and the issues that we're working with. So I'd say the majority of us have, you know, if not all, uh, we have some sort of practice, spiritual or meditative practice um, that keeps us grounded and present. All of the people you work with, 
Yeah, so Rios is a team right now, about 60 people around the world. Um, so consultants, um, facilitators, and yeah, the majority of us would have some sort of practice. Cool. And not, not that we have anything, you know, a common practice or anything like that, but some sort of practice that brings that element of presence and grounding and connection to something, you know, beyond us as well. Yeah, yeah I love that. Well, on a somewhat actually very different note, but <laughs> to wrap up, I love to hear your perspective. It doesn't have to be a complex answer, but what do you think is humanity or, or Earth's most pressing problem at the moment? It can be anything from, actually, I won't, won't even say anything. I'll let, I'll give you the floor. Yeah, I think anyone who's, you know, following, you know, the situation right now where it, although I am an optimist, there is a lot of challenges that, you know, might not have been that present 20 years ago when, you know, a lot of us were starting, starting or, you know, in mid, you know, career working on, on these types of issues, but it's, we're at the tipping points planetarily, human, um, so, I don't know, it's gonna take a lot for us to pull together and to actually shift what needs to be shifted. And so, um, and there's lots of forces, you know, moving in a different direction as well. So I don't think the next few years, next decade is gonna be very easy, um, but I'm just, I'm hopeful that there's many other people like you, younger people, and also the people who are you know, on this for many you know, decades already um, that we have, you know, what it takes to try to really shift and not not just this group of people, but being able to engage others um, on this journey, because I think it's, it's yeah, if, well, people are saying it's the next decisive, it's the de decisive decade, right? Um, if we don't, some people say it's a decade, some people say it's five years. Um, if we don't get our stuff together, um, then we're really, we're gonna start seeing even more of the catastrophes and the, the issues that we're facing today. So I don't want to leave on, a, on such a dismal <laughs> no. note, but no. um, I don't know. That's like, this wasn't the discourse that you heard maybe five, 10 years ago, but it's being the discourse that I'm starting to hear in many, many places now. Um, you know, the last couple of years, you know, this has kind of become more of the discourse. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think, well, maybe, I think it's a great note to end on because hearing it from you who has experience and you really have a good finger in the pulse and did, for the audience to hear how serious this truly is. It's, it's, it's bigger than anything within yourself or an organization. It's, it's just a huge thing for us. And um, it's a great call to action for listeners to, to do that thing you've been always wanting to do or get involved with something in, in social impact and take that, take that first step and you don't know where it will lead to. As we heard your story from the beginning, you go from one thing to another. And by the time you're 30, you've been to 40 countries. And so <laughs> who knows what's gonna happen in your, in your path. And so I love, I love to end that way and hear that, you know, there's a lot of problems ahead, but that means there's a lot of solutions to be had too. Um, so thank you very much, Christopher, for coming on. It was a very engaging conversation. And I know that everyone listening Really appreciate it. Um, so thank you so much and good luck with everything in the future. Thank you so much as well. It was just a great opportunity to be able to share and engage with you and just to be connected with younger people as well that are really on this path because it's gonna be so important. So very inspiring to talk to you as well. 
And that wraps up today's episode. If you're still listening, I can feel the love and I appreciate you. If you're interested in learning more about this type of work and how you can get involved, we got you. Join the Why It Matters community through our Instagram or Twitter handle at why underscore it underscore matters underscore or our LinkedIn at why it matters. We can direct you to resources and people to help you out. To learn more about Christelle and her work, go to R-E-O-S-P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S dot com. I'll see y'all soon.